finally this is happening. And then I was like, I told you, this is what I've right. been saying <laughs> all along. You know, this, I mean, it was like a uh, vindication for me, right? That, you know, yeah. this is what I've been saying all along, what we've been saying all along. But unfortunately, we still had to wait, I think, another year and a half before we were actually exonerated. And then what? that's the ultimate, the best kind of I told you so, right? When you're finally <laughs> fully exonerated, like this is what we've been saying the whole time. Thanks for finally catching up. Yeah. I mean, it only took, you know, <laughs> 22 years at that time, you know, to finally receive vindication. Hi, Jillian here, and this is Let the Women Do the Work, the podcast where we look at true crime from the perspectives of the women involved. Because in all these stories, there are women in all kinds of roles who don't get the mic. And in this episode, we're handing it over to someone who was at the center of a storm and weathered her way out by standing in her own truth. Here she is again. Yeah, uh, my name is Anna Vasquez, and I live in uh, just south of San Antonio in a little place called Atkins, Texas. And I am the director of outreach and education for the Innocence Project of Texas. Anna works in wrongful conviction advocacy. She travels around, or, you know, these days hops on Zoom, and educates the public, and specifically young people, on their rights when it comes to participating in criminal investigations. How one small move or answer can lead to innocent people getting locked up. And how that could happen to any of us, but disproportionately to people of color, people in her community. She knows firsthand how unfair the criminal justice system in this country can be because she served over a decade in prison for something she didn't do. Actually, for something that never even happened. Here's a clip from Southwest of Salem, a documentary about Anna's story. It has certain aspects that certainly sound like a story. You know, Hansel and Gretel or or Sleeping Beauty. Come in, come into my cottage, little girl. It's too bizarre. It's almost dreamlike. They take each other's hands and they go into this bedroom and suddenly they're making out and they're caressing each other. And if you take the little girls out, you replace the little girls with a man, the whole scenario sounds like a porn movie. And it sounds like a man's version of what women do in their spare time. We've mentioned the satanic panic before on the pod, and we'll mention it again here. Because in the late 90s, Anna and her partner Cassie Rivera, along with their two friends Liz Ramirez and Christy Mayhew, were wrapped up in what many would describe as a modern-day witch trial. I mean, they're lesbians, so of course, right? The San Antonio Four, as they were called, were accused of gang-raping two young girls, and they all went to prison for it. The case was bathed in homophobia from the start, And the four of them had to disentangle that from their stories in order to eventually reach freedom. They weren't monsters, but they sure as hell were treated like them. And while they were in prison, documentarian Deborah Esquenazi heard about their story. As a POC woman in the closet herself, she caught wind of the story and thought, this could have been me. She started interviewing the accused and everyone around the case. And in 2016, the movie Southwest of Salem was released to glowing reviews. It won the GLAAD Media Award for Outstanding Documentary and a Peabody Award. And most notably, it allowed the San Antonio Four to tell their truth. I've watched it multiple times and cannot recommend it enough. Even the film's poster tells a bit of their story. It shows all four women standing in a pyramid in their prison uniforms with Anna dead center. Her head turned down. She looks the way you do when you're staving off tears. Strength and vulnerability all in one. 
This is what Anna embodied when she eventually became the de facto voice for all four of these wrongfully convicted women. And it's what she embodies now in her work with other wrongfully convicted individuals. But what shaped Anna into the advocate she is today? Let's start from the beginning. Anna grew up in San Antonio in the late 70s, early 80s. The times of Reagan, poofy hair, and to put it lightly, fluctuating values around inclusivity. The country was changing whether those in power wanted it to or not. And there was Anna, a certifiably good kid from a Catholic family who played sports all year round. She wasn't a lesbian. She was just a basketball player and a track and field athlete and a volleyballer and a softball player. You get the gist. Well, I can tell you back in high school, I wasn't out, right? So playing sports, it was okay to be tomboyish, but nothing further than that. So that's pretty much how they, I guess, looked at me and accepted me, right? But there were a couple, not a few, but a couple of gay people in high school. And they, I just saw how they were just always tormented and they were out. And and that was fine with me. I had no problem with that at all. I thought they were so brave to be doing that and having to endure all the torment that they did, you know, but that wasn't something that I wanted either. Right. So that's why I say it was wise for myself not to come out. I wasn't, I wasn't ready. And, you know, to top it all off, there was a lot of gay bashings during that time here in San Antonio. But someone she did know who was out in high school was her friend, Liz Ramirez. Liz was a few years older than Anna. They met playing sports together. So Liz was in a relationship with my best friend. That was her first lesbian relationship, and uh, that was in high school. Well, when Liz's parents found out that she was dating my best friend, which was, her name was Jolene, they didn't accept it. You know, they threw her out of the house. So Liz moved in with her sister, Rosa, and her sister's husband, Javier. The drama was still high in the family as Liz continued seeing this girlfriend, Jolene. And Anna was one of those upstanding friends, hardworking, athletic, nice, the kind of kid parents love. Liz's family was no exception, so Anna smartly used that to their advantage. So I would go and ask for permission for Liz to go out with me, but then we would meet up with Jolene. So even though I was still there, she was still seeing Jolene. So I was kind of like the middleman for them to be able to continue this relationship. She was also a sounding board for Liz through this situation. She described one time the two of them went grocery shopping, and they had a weird conversation. It was about Javier, Liz's sister's husband who she'd been staying with. Liz told Anna that Javier had made her feel uncomfortable. And now I'm not talking about touching or anything like that, but he would go into her bedroom, close the door, and have conversations with her, and she just felt very uncomfortable, you know, being in that position. So I was like, you know what? You need to get out of there because it just seems like, I mean, if he's making you feel uncomfortable, there's a reason for that, right? I mean, just going into a bedroom with your brother-in-law, that shouldn't make you uncomfortable, but it was a constant pattern with him. You know, this is a grown man with a high school student. So it, it was just a bad situation altogether, I think. So her hands were tied, really. And Liz took Anna's advice. She got out of there and actually dropped out of high school altogether. She moved in with Jolene and started working. Her life was drifting in a new direction, away from Anna, school, and sports. They fell out of touch for a while. Until years later, Anna came out to her mom at 18. She even told a handful of other people. 
Anna's life was changing too. And then she fell in love. So when I met Cassie, I was a high school graduate. I had um, started working at a fast food restaurant and I met her there through a friend of mine that uh, a childhood friend and just really kind of hit it off. You know, we kind of had that connection to where it was, you know, real easy to talk to. She was really outgoing great personality, very friendly. So, you know, we just hit it off the bat. And um, from there, it was just history, I guess you can say, right? And life comes full circle. Because Cassie knew Liz, she and Anna would go over to Liz's apartment. Their friend Christy would often be there too. Anna described it as a safe haven for all four of them. It was where we felt like, you know, I can sit by Cass, I could hold her hand, You know, it wasn't something that there wasn't a lot of PDA at that time, public display of affection. Right. So at Liz's apartment, we felt like a couple, really. So there was a lot of times that we did visit Liz. We hung out with her all the time. It was um, nothing out of the ordinary. So to have this detective call me out of the blue and tell me that I'm being accused of sexually assaulting Vanessa and Stephanie Limon. I mean, as you can imagine, I was just completely blown away, in shock, disbelief. Vanessa and Stephanie are Liz's nieces. They're also Javier's daughters. The two little girls spent a week at Liz's apartment in the summer of 1994. The reality is that the whole friend group was there too. And as the story goes, all four got calls a few weeks later informing them of some accusations. They were being accused of sexually assaulting the two girls. So I received a call from a detective Macheca and there was allegations being made. And he basically asked me if I had anything to say about it. And, you know, if I would go in for the investigation for things that he wanted to ask me, basically questioning, right? I thought this had to be a huge mistake and hell yes, let's do it. I will participate in anything you want me to do because this is a mistake and we need to clear up, you know, these accusations. So yes, I would do anything that you wanted me to say. You know, growing up, you respected authority. You did what they asked. So there was never a problem or hesitation about me participating in this investigation that I was being accused of. And just heartbreaking. It was, it was heartbreaking to get accused of that type of crime. Hey girl, Billion Dollar Box is back. Look, can I just say this is all about the makeup of which you do not need a stitch because you're perfect? Thank you ever so much. I do love it because here's the thing about makeup palettes that you might not know. Usually you love half the colors, maybe two or three. That's super wasteful. It's really expensive. So Billion Dollar Beauty is this thing where you have the option to purchase just 
the shades and the products you actually use and you don't sacrifice quality or convenience. So it comes in this completely customizable compact box and it's very sustainable. And then it has this little kickstand mirror. All You saw it backstage in, in the dressing room. You were like, yes! what is that cute thing? And I was like, oh, it just has absolutely everything I need. I used to travel with like one big makeup bag, like in case I needed some random thing here or there that was 10 years old. No, with Billion Dollar Box, now I have exactly what I need. A little magnetized, little mirror, and I'm ready to go. I've never heard you speak so rapid fire about a product before. You love this stuff. Because it makes my whole routine rapid fire. That's the thing. It's like everything I want in one place. I love it so much. I get this, fam. The Billion Dollar Box has over 40 beauty pans and products, like the number one best-selling universal brow pencil, magnetic brush trio, and what's your favorite? Oh, the highlighter. I, I learned to use highlighter <laughs> thanks to Billion Dollar Box. I was never yes. using that on my cheeks before. I always love it when we find a product that you actually love because that means it, it actually is great. And you were psyched to talk about this. I was very psyched. And also like the makeup brushes, they're compact. They're also magnetized. So you're not losing anything in your bag, which is now I'm like my mother, like I can't find anything in this purse. Not anymore. <laughs> so fam, here's the deal. Join the refill revolution and build your own billion dollar box at billiondollarbeauty.com and receive 20% off your entire purchase when you enter code WORK at checkout. That's right. And the thing about it is that it's barely any work to get your makeup together anymore. <laughs> you did it. Does oh, that work? You I don't know. <laughs> Just using that word over and over again. Work. If you're getting a sense of what's happening here, you're probably onto something. Four lesbian women convening in one place with two little girls present, being accused of sexual crimes with no hard evidence... Well, if that isn't a recipe for some blatant homophobia, I don't know what is. See, in the mid-90s, LGBTQ plus people were in the national conversation, as they long had been, fighting for their rights, their health and safety, and how the country can, and should, help in that effort. And this came with a ton of backlash. 150,000 dead! Where was George? 150,000 dead! Where was George? The policy I am announcing today is, in my judgment, the right thing to do and the best way to do it. I mean, what is wrong? That why, why do I have to be so ashamed? I mean, why can't I just say the truth? I mean, be who I am. I'm 35 years old. It is right because it provides greater protection to those who happen to be homosexual and want to serve their country honorably in uniform obeying all the military's rules against sexual misconduct. I'm not for gay marriage. I, I think marriage is a sacred institution between a man and a woman. The Defense of Marriage Act is a stain on our democracy. We must do away with this unjust, discriminatory law once and for all. I appreciate the way the administration um, signed the Defense of Marriage Act. I'm going to be respectful. It reminds me of another dark time in our nation's history. I'm so afraid to tell people. I mean, in many years when state passed laws banning blacks and whites from marriage. It is the best way to proceed because it provides a sensible balance between the rights of the individual and the needs of our military to remain the world's number one fighting force. Susan, I'm gay. And one day we will look back on this period with that same sense of disbelief. So when these four lesbians were accused of this kind of crime, context informed everything. Liz, the girl's aunt, was tried first and labeled the ringmaster of it all. She got a 37 and a half year sentence. Then Anna, Cassie, and Christy all went to trial together, where the two young girls testified to what had allegedly been done to them. 
Yeah. So to be honest with you, Jillian, there's a lot of things that I don't remember. Like, I know I was there. I heard the two little girls testify, you know, the outcry witness, which was their grandmother. But a lot of the details I don't remember. So there was two specific days that they had said that there was the sexual assault. And even though that we presented our time records that this couldn't have possibly occurred, I think there was maybe like a 10 to 15 minute window that we were all for there. And the things that they say that we did to them, you know, it was holding down. It was, you know, uh, there was drugs in the apartment. It, it was just like this whole day assault. And there was just no way that it could have happened. But here's the thing. Going against children in court is difficult. It seems cruel to deny their experiences. So juries are, of course, often sympathetic to them. They're powerless in a lot of situations. And then there was the expert witness, pediatrician Dr. Nancy Kellogg. She'd examined the girls ahead of trial and compared their genitalia to what the science at the time deemed a, quote, normal model. Basically, she spotted some abnormalities and argued in court that these were due to sexual trauma, the kind of sexual trauma from the all-day assault story that had been concocted. She literally said, per the trial transcript, quote, Insertion of objects into the vagina is consistent with gay sexual lesbian relationships. I mean, when you were hearing this, was there a moment when, if you can remember, did you still have hope at this moment that the truth would prevail and the truth would come out? I did. I did all the way through it, all the way throughout trial, you know, um, with our time records being presented, you know, and they're showing that there is no way that we could have all been there doing these horrific things. It's just not possible. And the horrible testimony that they, you know, said the things that we did to them, I still had hope. I, I still could not fathom that we would go to prison, be found guilty. And um, I, I just still had hope. I believed in the system. I truly did. I wholeheartedly, without a doubt, I just felt still hopeful that the truth would come out. But the truth would have to wait. Anna got 15 years for sexual assault of a child and an additional 10 years for indecency with a child. Cassie and Christy got the same. And I want to highlight here how honest a move it was for them to accept these convictions. After Liz was given her 37 and a half years, the other three were given an offer. Plead guilty, get 10 years probation, and never set foot in prison. Anna told me they were facing anywhere from 5 to 99 years each. So this was an attractive offer. She saw why anyone would take it, but they didn't. And in the year 2000, they went into custody. I don't know. I, I, I really don't know how I was able to get through each step from, you know, knowing that I was going to prison, saying goodbye to your family the night before, then, you know, going, turning yourself in, in the you know courtroom and then um so we're in county and because it's bear county we're housed together i was able to see um cassie and she was there maybe like a week and then they whisked her off to uh tdcj which is texas department of criminal justice and i was stuck in county waiting for my turn to take that bus ride so after that 
I didn't see Cassie until, I don't know, maybe 11 years later when she showed up at the prison I was at. My dearest Cass, I leave you now for the next 13 years to suffer in a cage, to conform to the codes and rules of prison life, to feel fear every day. I leave you, Cass, sweet and innocent, and soon you, fueled with rage, will change. We've been devastated, my love. And thus, Anna entered prison with her truth intact, but her whole world changed. She was embarking on the challenge of behaving well, getting along, getting by, while also standing behind her innocence. So being in prison, it's very structured, right? Like you are being told when you're going to eat, when you're going to go to work, where you're going to go to work. And everything is just set up for you. When to take in your laundry, when you're going to have recreation time. So everything's structured. But because of being there for so long, sometimes things out here in the world, in the free world, should I say, it gets overwhelming sometimes. Uh, I don't do very good with um, my time, I guess. I I feel like I could do better. I have a problem with long-term goals. And I'll say that because while I was in prison, it was, I'm just trying to get through the day. I have to survive the day. And the unit that I was in, which is the hobby unit in Marlin, Texas, that is the worst women's prison in Texas. And uh, it, it was just like survival mode for 12 and a half years, constantly watching your back, just because there was always fights happening, people getting cut up. Uh, there was actually uh, a roommate that murdered her other roommate. And see, things like that don't really occur in your other prisons, but it sure did in Hobby. It was horrible. You know, that's why I stayed away from all that. I tried to keep myself under the shadows, you know, in in the background, you know, not staying away from all the drama. But you have to. You have to live still in prison. You have to do what what they say. If not, well, then you're going to sit in solitary confinement. You're going to get punished. And that was just something that I refused to do. So I did what I was told. And like I said, I became your model prisoner and I tried to take advantage of every opportunity that I had in there to learn something. She'd learn anything, follow any rule, so long as it didn't interfere with her truth. About 10 years into her sentence, Anna had worked her way up, been a well-behaved prisoner, and reached a crossroads. She was offered a course for sex offenders, and she made the decision to turn it down. She wasn't a sex offender, and she was punished greatly for not submitting to that label. She was put in solitary confinement for two months. She says that out of her whole 12 and a half years served, being in solitary was absolutely the thing that tested her most. Here's how she described it. Dark, dark. I thought about everything. I mean, I went back to, was there a different way to deny this sex offender treatment program to avoid this, right? I was, I knew I was going to deny it, but was there something else that I could have done to avoid solitary confinement? You know, I started questioning that. I went back to, you know, when I was with Cassie and, you know, some of the things that, you know, I hurt her in our relationship, you know, at times. And 
I would think about that. I would think about my family and what, you know, what they've been through and how they've had to deal with this, uh, you know, me being away in prison. And that wasn't something that I ever thought about, I guess, because, you know, when I was at Hobby, I always kept busy, whether I was, you know, in the print shop or I was writing letters to people or I was watching TV or I was on the recreation yard. You know, there was always something to do there. And when you're in solitary, time stands and all you have is a Bible, a sheet of paper and a pencil. And that's the worst thing. So if people have seen Orange is the New Black, when Piper goes to solitary and she starts talking to an egg, it's real. You're looking for that human connection. Being in solitary, if somebody would jiggle keys or I heard a door open, I would try to find a crack to see if I could see somebody. It was the craziest thing. And I thought I was really losing my mind. I really think solitary confinement needs to be taken out of prisons. I could not agree with you more. I think it's completely inhumane. Yes, it's completely inhumane. I mean, shit, we're already being punished and in prison. How much more of a prison prison do you want to put in prison? I mean, it's just, I see now why there are a lot of people that commit suicide or, you know, lose their mind by being in solitary confinement. And for so many years, you know, I was just in there for two months, but it did, you know, have a role in my way of thinking. Sure. And there at her lowest point, a miracle happened. Hey, girl, I have some news for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Yes, we love BetterHelp. Fam, we all know this. Life can be overwhelming and many people are burned out without even knowing it. So symptoms of burnout, and believe me, this is talking right to my soul, can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, fatigue, and more. I mean, this applies to all of us. You know what some of that and more is? Guilt. Because yeah. I feel guilty <laughs> for being unmotivated instead of just cutting myself a little bit of slack. And we always associate burnout with work, which which can be true a lot of the time, but it's not the only cause. So any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling burned out. Friendships, obligations. Marriage, parenting. Uh, the whole thing. <laughs> and talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life, and then you can sort of work through that stress, and then everyone feels better. And I gotta tell you, that's where BetterHelp comes in. They're there to do the things that therapists do, which is help you understand your life and get back on track. Right, so BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's also way more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is so key. It is way less expensive than traditional therapy. Yes, and not as time consuming. So let the women listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash do the work. That's betterhelp.com slash do the work. And go do the work, fam. It's really worth it. It's totally going to be worth it. It's going to be, you're going to be tired sometimes, but that's all right. It's going to be good. Yeah, that means you're okay. actually doing the work. <laughs> Now, something to know that Anna told me about prison, and she alluded to it earlier, is this. Prison is all about tears. Disobey rules and you'll get knocked down, maybe as far as she was in solitary confinement. Do what the guards say, move up the ranks, and maybe, maybe shoot your shot at getting out on parole. Where Anna was at this time, after she denied the sex offender treatment program, sitting in solitary, she was at the second from the bottom tier. In other words, nowhere in fighting shape for parole. So when she actually did get parole in 2012, she chalked it up to this. I'm going to have to chalk that up to timing and a miracle. 
The results of a polygraph test she'd taken were presented to the director of the treatment program as proof of her innocence, proof that she did not commit these crimes and could not in good conscience participate in the course. I don't know what happened. I don't know if the clouds parted, right? But I received in medium custody an FI-1, which is you're being released on parole within 30 to 45 days. And, you know, it was just a miracle. I think I was still in shock. I mean, I was kind of like, um, didn't know what to do. Uh, Is this real? Um, So throughout the process of getting that uh, notification that, you know, I got an FI-1, they're going to take it away, right? I mean, I just thought that something was going to happen to where it it was revoked, basically. Uh, So I never really put a lot of thought into it. And um, it wasn't really until I, I, you know, got into the car and was able to hold my mom that it was really like, okay, this is a real thing. Like, I'm here, I'm out, you know, I'm outside those gates now. So I guess it became a little bit more realistic. I was actually the first one to be released that day because we had media attention. So they wanted to kick me out and get us off the property really quick. So we went down the street and stopped at an H-E-B parking lot. And I just, I mean, literally like, you know, I never was able to chew gum in there. That was one thing that they, it was prohibited from being in there. And uh, so I just kept stuffing and I didn't even pay attention, you know, because there's cameras in your face and everything. So I'm just putting this, you know, how much <laughs> damn gum could I put in my mouth? Right. But I just kept chewing away. Uh, so, but it, it, it was good. And, you know, being able to look outside, you know, beyond the gates, it was good. It was nice. But Anna was just one of all four out. So not only was she in shock, adjusting to her freedom and its limits, she was also coping with guilt. And she had to deal with it productively. It was really hard for me to accept, one, I'm leaving on parole as a registered sex offender. And this was something that I, you know, didn't want to do, right? But, you know, I spent a lot of time in meditation talking to God and just basically embracing the fact that I was going to be on parole and I had to do something. I just couldn't, you know, be on parole and not advocate for myself because that was the thing. So I felt like, why me? Why, why is it me? And I wasn't very outspoken, Jillian. I always wanted to be behind the scenes, you know? So by, you know, making that commitment to being the voice for all four of us. Uh, yeah, I, I had to step it up and come out of my comfort shell and um, just start advocating for myself. Anna got to work. Bake sales, fundraising efforts, communicating with the families of Cassie, Liz, and Christy. There was a lot of attention about her release, so she took advantage of that and said yes to every interview she could. Before she knew it, she'd become the de facto face of the San Antonio Four. Summer 2000, Cassandra Rivera and Ana Vasquez turned themselves into authorities to begin a 15-year prison sentence. We know you're innocent. 
13 years later, Ana Vasquez is the first of the women to be paroled. Now that I'm out, I feel like I'm their voice. Mayhew, Ramirez, and Rivera, now all in their late 30s, remain locked up. Ana is now holding fundraisers to help her friends adjust to life once they're released. A struggle she's still dealing with as a registered sex offender. The Innocence Project of Texas has taken their case. That's really the only thing that we are focused on doing to get our names cleared and the exoneration done. How do you do that every day? I mean, what was your goal? Was your goal to get them out? Was your goal full exoneration? What were you working towards every day? I guess I I was working towards our innocence, you know, for the truth to finally come out. That was the whole goal. I didn't want this label on me. I didn't want to be known as this sex offender who preys on children. And because I'm a lesbian, of course it's true. Because, uh, you know, the alleged victims are female. It it was horrible. It's like I couldn't even make a name for myself, Jillian. That was my name. And that's what it was attached to. I wanted my innocence to be proven. I wanted the three other girls to be released from prison because it wasn't fair. They needed to be home. They were innocent as well. So that was my goal. That was my determination. And while Anna was tirelessly telling her story, someone else was sharing theirs. Stephanie Lamont, one of the two girls who originally testified to being assaulted all those years ago, had grown up. She was now in her 20s, a mother. And as shown in the documentary on the case, Southwest of Salem, she had a guilty conscience and was brave enough to act on it. Stephanie recanted her testimony and told her real story. Her truth was that she and her sister, in that fateful summer of 1994, were caught by their grandmother putting their Barbies in various sexual positions. To cope with this, maybe even explain it away, the girls were instructed by their family, and specifically their father Javier, to concoct this story about their stay at Aunt Liz's house. They were told to put the sexual deviant somewhere else. And when Stephanie recanted and came out with this new story, it was at a cost. Her father, Javier, tried to sue her for custody of her own kids. And the first time I heard this, I immediately thought, wow, Stephanie had a lot to lose. She had to have felt strongly enough about this to take that risk. And Anna agrees. Yeah, for as far as the recantation from Stephanie, she's almost like my hero. You know, she was so brave in telling the truth and going against her family that was just adamant about you just don't remember you know, uh, you're wrong. And and she just, no, she did the right thing. And then someone else did the right thing. Remember that expert witness, the pediatrician who presented in Anna's trial, saying based on the appearance of the kid's genitals that the sexual assault happened to them? Well, by the early 2000s, the science had evolved, as it always does. The National Academy of Sciences released a report in 2009 showing how many forensic science disciplines lack the underlying scientific solidity for convictions. It began this whole discussion of junk science and the misuse of it in court. So in 2013, Dr. Kellogg signed an affidavit saying she would not have testified to that science given her current knowledge. So thank God that she did do that. But I also think it's something that should have been done years prior What they thought were signs of sexual assault was proven to be false. And I think that there's some kind of responsibility for experts to try to fix these things when they know that they've testified for so long a certain way. 
And yet now it's not factual. And this is what it took to get the other three out. In 2013, after that affidavit was signed, Liz, Cassie, and Christy were all released. It's perhaps the most touching part of Southwest of Salem, partially because we see Cassie and Liz reuniting with their kids, who had to grow up so much while they were gone. After they were released, I felt like, okay, we're we're back together again. You see, because for so many years, Jillian, we were, all four of us were fighting, you know, this accusation, right? These charges at the time. And we could relate to each other because we were all going through the same shit, being accused of this, having to hire attorneys, having to, you know, pay our bondsmen. So it wasn't something like you can go meet somebody and have to explain all this baggage that you have along, you know, with you. So it was just very comforting during that time. So I had it again when the other three were released. And together, they returned to court to present that shared truth once more. Hey, girl, Athletic Greens is back. Girl, I love Athletic Greens. I know that sounds like a crazy thing because it sounds healthy, but I actually love it and I take it every day. Yeah, and the word athletic is in it, so it's weird that you love it. But (laughs) I don't know about you, but I started taking AG1 because I need a little help figuring out how to just be a little healthier. So with one scoop of AG1, you get 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. So I don't know what half of those things are, but I'm thrilled that I'm getting them. All in one scoop. Thanks to AG1. I started taking AG1 because I like was sick of having 10 cups of coffee to feel like more energized in the morning. You literally dump it into your water. It's a little amount. It makes your water taste good. And you get it all done quickly. And fam, it's affordable. It costs you less than $3 a day. And you're investing in your health. And it's cheaper than your cold brew habit, which I'm trying to kick anyway. Yeah. And if you get a subscription, your subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D, which is so important to add. Also, fam, Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews and is recommended by professional athletes, not just professional The Staircase watchers like me. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, fam, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com women. Again, that's athleticgreens.com women to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I can't wait to hear how it's going for you because honestly, it's weirdly delicious. I didn't think I'd like it, but I love it. So here you go. The adaptogens of it all. I mean, finally, I have the adaptogens (laughs) in my life. (laughs) What was it like going back into court in 2015 when you have these evidentiary hearings and now your fate is back in the hands of the system that is so, so flawed. It was frightening. I knew what we had from our defense attorneys and I knew it was powerful. I knew, you know, we had all our ducks lined up, all our T's crossed, and yet I was still frightened because, you know, had we lost that evidentiary hearing, we could have gone back and served the remaining of our sentence, the remaining time of our sentence. 
which wasn't very much, but for Liz, she probably had another 25 years to do before even completion of her of her sentence, if not more. So it was frightening. It was frightening. But this time was different. Instead of sitting there, as they did back in the 90s, helplessly getting barraged with homophobic assumptions as to the lesbian chaos that they must have inflicted on these kids, the San Antonio Four sat back and finally heard testimony that unraveled all those lies. Here's a clip from expert witness Dr. Alexandria Doyle that sums it all up and pulls in a possible motive for how this story came to be. That the girl's father, Javier, was vengeful of Liz's rejections. The proportion of homosexuals abusing kids is no different than heterosexuals abusing kids. So there's no reason to conclude because they're gay, they would have abused the children unless you're kind of naive. And maybe you have a vendetta. Liz has rejected him. And the revenge motive takes place throughout the history of this case with Stephanie, even to the point where she's recanting. So what was that like for you? I mean, <laughs> to hear, oh my God, the truth finally in front of everyone. Finally, this is happening. So yes, I felt that same way. Finally, this is happening. And then I was like, I told you, this is what I've been saying all along. You know, the, I mean, it was like a uh, vindication for me, right? That this is what I've been saying all along, what we've been saying all along, you know, but unfortunately we still had to wait, I think another year and a half before we were actually exonerated. The judge from that hearing bumped their case to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which reached a verdict on November 23, 2016. It read as follows. The defendants have won the right to proclaim to the citizens of Texas that they did not commit a crime, that they are innocent, that they deserve to be exonerated. These women have carried that burden. They are innocent and they are exonerated. This court grants them the relief they seek. District Court 175 is finally a part of the San Antonio Force past. Today in the same court where they were wrongly convicted, Ana Vasquez, Cassandra Rivera, Christy Mayhew, and Elizabeth Ramirez got their lives back from the Texas justice system. When you look at the date of offense, it goes all the way back to 1994. And that just gives, you know, puts in reality how long it has taken. You open right in the beginning of Southwest of Salem. You say, I've, I've always wondered where the story that they came up with was actually from. Where did it all begin? After all of this time and everything you've been through, do you have an answer for that? You know, I kind of really don't. I mean, we did have a private conversation with Stephanie that she shared more than what she did in the documentary. You know, basically according to what Stephanie told us, was that Javier kept pressuring them to say this. And it was something that was just like, they would get in trouble if they didn't say it, or if they tried to, you know, not agree with what he wanted them to say. So that's basically where I feel like it stemmed from. I, I believe Stephanie. There's something that comes through so strongly in the documentary with all four of you. Like, 
you're so graceful about it all. I mean, I it's amazing to be. I mean, I'm sitting here watching it, screaming to nobody, like, what the fuck just happened? Screaming it to myself, to my husband, scaring my dog. And so for 22 years, you're 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 standing in front of every microphone, every camera. You're telling your story. How did you not scream? What the fuck just happened? Or why aren't you fucking listening? How did you manage to to go through this? It was so calm, cool, and collected. That's a very uh, good question, Jillian. I think a lot of people that have not gone through a wrongful conviction think that way and feel that way. But in the end, Jillian, after going through so much, losing your freedom, being you know ripped away from your family, just everything that you've gone through, I was grateful. I was thankful. I, you know, we were one of the fortunate ones, Jillian. There's a lot of people that are just kicked out of prison. Yeah, they may have, you know, some kind of new evidence that, you know, they were released, but they weren't found actually innocent. And that is just a huge thing to be able to receive. I don't know. I don't know how, yeah, I hear that a lot. You know, I don't know how really to explain it to you, but I was thankful and it was genuine. You know, I was very grateful, I guess, because of everything that I've been through, everything that I saw, everything that I missed out of, that I was just grateful that it was finally over. And I wasn't mad. I wasn't mad, Jillian. I had years to get over that, right? Because, and and I wasn't so much mad. I was just basically, I couldn't wrap my mind around it, right? Like, how could this have happened? How can somebody go to prison that is actually innocent. How does this happen in our system, in our court system? But I will tell you that two and a half years, maybe into my prison sentence, I forgave everybody that had a hand in my conviction. And I had to for myself. You know, I just had to start living again and basically conform to prison because I knew that that was going to be my life for the next 15 years. This acceptance of what happened is admirable. And it's especially admirable given the direction Anna took next. As mentioned before, she's now the Director of Outreach and Education for the Innocence Project of Texas. And she sits on several boards of organizations dedicated to similar work. She's dedicated to making sure what happened to her happens to as few people as possible in her community and beyond. Outreach and Education for the Innocence Project of Texas. I just go out there and do a lot of the outreach. So, right, who better to tell you a a story about wrongful conviction than somebody that's actually lived it, been there. Um, I guess working with the Innocence Project of Texas, it it brings back a lot of the memories, right? It's almost a cycle. When you think you're okay, then you start talking to somebody that is either going through it or had already been through it. So it's hard. But I also believe that I need to give back. I need to be able to help others because I didn't have anybody. And I think that that's so powerful to be able to have support and family support because a lot of family members will call me and just want to talk. I think it's just so important that I'm able to be there for people for support and try to change laws, you know, um, try to educate the public about wrongful convictions. Believe it or not, Jillian, a lot of people don't believe it, don't think it could happen to them. I think that it's very important for these young adults, because I love speaking to high schools and universities especially, I really want them to be educated on knowing their rights 
knowing that they don't have to go and, you know, participate in an investigation, please get an attorney. You know, it, it shouldn't ever be a second thought. And I think it's just very important. I just, I wish that that was there for me in my younger years. And beyond education, Anne is also determined to make spaces more just in the process. She sits on the board of the Innocence Network, which is a global innocence advocacy organization. And on that board, she's worked on diversity, equity, and inclusion. She says this needs to be considered more than ever in the advocacy world. To paint a picture, Anna attends a conference with the Innocence Network every year. People gather from all over the world, and there's a dinner where all the newly released prisoners in the audience step on stage for everyone to applaud them. Basically, there's a bit of background, how much time they serve for what, whatnot. But it's funny because when you're up there, it's all people of color. You know, it, so there, there are white people up there, but not very many. Not very many females, but the majority is a lot of people of color. Well, when you're on the stage, speaking for myself, when I'm on stage and I look out and look at the audience or the others that are just around their tables, it's all white. It's a sea of white. And dealing with the diversity, equity, inclusion, and what we're trying to do is bring in more people of color that can actually be able to communicate, relate to their clients. And I think it'll be helpful. And shouldn't we be on the forefront of bringing in diversity, equity, and inclusion? I mean, shit. I mean, we should be there. We should be not just talking about being, you know, this type of group. We need to prove it. We need to show it. So we need to start hiring more people of color, whether it's attorneys or counselors or just bringing in people of color. Why don't we have as many people of color in our group, and we should be the leader of this. Anna's life has calmed a bit since the storm. She's embracing simple pleasures, like that gum she chewed on the day of her release. We connected with her from what she calls her cave, a room of her own creation in her house, complete with a bar, old-school arcade games, license plates, and Steelers paraphernalia. She's a big fan. She also has five, yes, five, German Shepherds. They, unfortunately, were not available for this interview. Usually day to day, I do a lot of uh, speaking engagements. It's kind of slowed down a little bit. I'm doing more Zoom than in person uh, just because of the way the pandemic's been, you know, coming about. And um, honestly, if I'm not doing work for the Innocence Project of Texas, I am in the yard. I love being in the yard, Jillian. I can jump on my riding lawnmower and cut the grass or pick up a weed eater. <laughs> I mean, little things like that. Yeah. I just embrace it because I know how it feels to have all those little things taken away from you. So I'm good. I'm grateful for where I am and I'm happy. I'm happy for the most part. I asked Anna if this experience has impacted how she sees her lesbian identity. And her answer was an interesting, bittersweet, yet hopeful one. I think because of the time that the accusations came about, it was just a horrible time to bring up accusations against gay people, period. The way the world was thinking back then, relating homosexuals to preying on children was ridiculous. And I think when people fear something, they automatically think it's a bad thing. And, you know, now 
I'm still private, to be honest with you. And I think I still have that way of not being comfortable, you know, being out and about, even though you can look at me, right, and pretty much figure out that I'm a gay woman, right? Like I'm a lesbian. But I also embrace it because, you know, the, the younger generation, our, our young adults, man, they're just, they're out there, right? Like I couldn't see myself back then being so bold about it and embracing it and going to proms. And, you know, it's just amazing to me that even in high schools, you know, there's groups surrounding our queer family, you know, and, and I think it's just fantastic that they're so brave to be able to take that and be able to be themselves. Because I'll tell you, living in the closet, hiding from the person that you are, that's difficult. It's always like you're looking over your shoulder. But, you know, I am proud to be a lesbian woman. I'm proud to to claim that. And it's something that I don't hide anymore from my family and friends. Either you can accept it or you don't have to be in my life. And same thing for the ones that are coming out, the youngers, my, my nephew that recently came out, you know, my niece has come out, you know, so on and so forth. So I'm going to be there to support them because I didn't get that. You know, that wasn't something that was accepted back then. So I'm going to be their rock. Oh, they're so lucky to have you. I hope so. We'll find <laughs> <It's> out. Like, <laughs> and you're just cool, too, by the way. You're just like, <laughs> I'm cool. They're also lucky to have you just as an aunt because you're awesome. And while Anna's busy continuing her work and being the cool aunt, there's stuff you can do too, listener. Primarily, you can donate to Innocence Projects around the world. Anna says the more you do this, the more clients she can reach and the fewer innocent people we have in prison. And check out innocenceproject.org to read up on wrongful conviction cases in your communities. The more we pass along these stories, the louder they become. Let the Women Do the Work is a production from the Obsessed Network, and it's produced by Becca DiGregorio, Natalie Grillo, Patrick Hines, and me, Jillian Pensavalli. Our editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Find me on Twitter at Jillian with a G. And remember, just let the women do the work. It was a true honor to be able to spend time with you, even though it was virtually. Please tell your dogs I said hi. Give them nice pets for me, please. I love them all. <laughs> Absolutely. I sure will. I'll go give them some hugs and squeezes, especially after this interview. Yes, please do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>